Welcome to the February 2018 edition of the Census of Cinema podcast. I'm Mark Freeman, one of the editors at the Journal, and I'm joined today by my co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Eloise Ross. Hey, Mark. And in our constantly and ever-rotating third chair this month, we've got our most excellent friend, Stuart Richards. Stuart. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Tell us what you're doing in the world of screen culture. Well, I do my best. I am teaching at RMIT University and the University of Melbourne as a delightful sessional lecturer. I am currently doing a fellowship with the AFI Research Collection, uh, which is very exciting. And I've just joined Plato's Cave on Triple R, which is lots of fun. Oh, so so you're, a, you're a certified member, are you? Not a certified member, but I'm slowly <laughs> creeping my way in. Fantastic. And Plato's Cave is one of the, the leading uh, radio shows on, on film in Melbourne, uh, mm. where we record this podcast. So well done. Which is very exciting. That's it's an honour. Very exciting. Well, it's great to have you with us, and we're, we're ready to have a fantastic show Yes, we yes. are. Yeah. <laughs> you look unconvinced there. <laughs> I'm so ready to have a fantastic show. All right. On today's show, we're going to be looking at Warwick Thornton's latest film, Sweet Country, where an Aboriginal man flees the rough outback justice that awaits him after he kills an abusive white man in self-defence. And then the three of us are going to take a look at the Oscars. Who is going to win big at this year's awards, or will Bonnie and Clyde steal the show and the limelight for the second year running? And then finally, we're going to take a closer look at one of the nominees for this year, the cinematographer Roger Deakins. Nominated four times and at this point still without a win, we'll look at his collaborations with a range of filmmakers and reflect on his incredible career behind the camera. And in our bonus segment for our patrons this month, we're going to be talking about our favourite films from our very own home city, Melbourne, Australia, as part of the dossier entitled Screening Melbourne, which is up on our current issue of Census of Cinema. Warwick Thornton's Sweet Country tells the story of Sam Kelly, who's played by Hamilton Morris, an Aboriginal man who assists Sam Neill's character, Fred Smith, on a remote station in the Australian outback. Attacked by an abusive, drunken neighbour, Sam runs from the law, headed by Sergeant Fletcher, played by Brian Brown, who intends to exact his own form of outback justice on the man. It's a tense pursuit film, an Australian take on the American Western, and an intense investigation into land and ownership. It's a film that premiered at Venice last year and was awarded the Special Jury Prize at that festival. So, Eloise, did Sweet Country affect you as deeply as it did the jury at Venice? It really did. Um, I think we will probably get into this a bit later, but I don't think everything about the film is perfect, and I think that some of its characters and its script in particular are the weakest parts. But as an experience of film-going... Um, and particularly going back to when I saw it in a, in a cinema, um, I was just blown away. I think Warwick Thornton has an incredible aptitude for portraying um, stories of land and um, personhood through visual and oral, um, through the visual and oral medium, I think. Yeah. And so even though he is an artist who is perhaps more successful in his experimental filmmaking or experimental art practice. I do really like that occasionally. I mean, the last time was with Samson and Delilah in 20, 2009, sorry, but I do like that we get this chance to see what he does with the cinematic medium um, to kind of practice his his pursuits. Yeah. How about you, Stuart? How did you find it? Yeah, I 
in sort of thinking about this film, uh, like looking at his career from Samson and Delilah, they're such different films, I think. I find Samson and Delilah to be a really insular film, just focusing on those two characters. So it was really interesting to see uh, him sort of go broader, I think, and looking at several characters and I think each of their own relationships to the land, uh, which I really loved. I love the, I guess, and we'll probably get into this, I love how he shoots the land in this film. Um, I mean, it's just breathtaking. Seeing that on the big screen, that was incredible. So will we start maybe trying to make sense of what he is playing around with in terms of the way that he shoots the land? Because it is, I mean, some of those shots, because he's also the cinematographer, mm. so he's both director and, and the DOP, essentially. Um, some of those, the ways that he captures land on film is just incredible. Um, mm. I, I keep coming back. It's an image that still sticks with me is there's a shot where Sam Kelly and his wife and it's kind of it's almost past magic hour. Do you know the one I'm, I'm talking about? Where the, the sky has started to turn this very, very deep, dark blue. And they're sitting on a on a rocky outcrop, sharing water between each other. And there's this incredibly white, bright full moon that just sticks in the middle of the frame. Mm. And Thornton just kind of holds that shot for a really long period of time. And it's just about soaking in not just the land that they're sitting on, but the sky that's above it. Um, what do you reckon he's saying about the land and how is he telling that story visually? Well, I have seen some criticism that Warwick Thornton's pacing is too slow and I absolutely, you know, have no time for that kind of criticism. I think that what he's doing with these shots that he holds for a long time, even though there's no progression of the narrative, so to speak, that there is a progression of um, his perspective on the land and his perspective on belonging and ownership and just how, you know, how people exist in the outback and how they can um, navigate and negotiate with what's around them. And I think that, you know, he he takes a step back and pauses and it's just so incredible, yeah. so powerful. I mean, I do love that he's the DOP um, and that those pauses, you know, on a sunset or a pink sky, stretches of red land, stretches of the white salt flats, you know, yeah. where, where it's kind of a mirage that, that goes on forever and that's... It's incredible. I mean, that's actually what what it's like being in the outback. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I don't know what it's like being in the outback in 1929, but, but I feel that he does justice to being out there. Mm. I think there's a real otherworldly quality to a lot of those shots. And I'm obviously saying this as a white guy from Melbourne uh, who's not very familiar with the Northern Territory and the, sort of that outback. Um and so for me, I think a lot of the meaning draws on the, the Western genre as well in terms of what he's doing. And I have a quote here from him where he wanted to use the accessibility of the Western genre for audiences to enter the story and be drawn into this world and so experience the issues faced by an occupied people. Um, so for me, I think, yeah, even though perhaps the story isn't moving forward, um, I think sort of the meaning he's generating in terms of why that land is so important is just sort of being exemplified even more through those still shots. And I think that, you know, what you've both said, particularly about the, the idea of the pacing, people complaining about the pacing, and the, this idea that he kind of bolts on Australia onto a really distinctly American mm. genre. And, and what I came away from after watching the film was, yeah, I can see the little markers 
of where the Western lives. Mm. You know, there's a couple of framing shots that are kind of like the searches and, mm. you know, there, there's a few kind of, you know, it's a pursuit narrative and we've seen that sort of stuff in the American Western really often. But it doesn't feel like it's American. Mm. And, and I think that, that what Thornton does is takes a really familiar structure and then says, I'm taking the skeleton of this and I'm turning it into something really Australian. Because our outback is not kind of a place necessarily of action in the way that the American West, we kind of think of it as being, you know, gunfights and people running around and cattle rustling and that sort of stuff. Our outback is a kind of deadness. And and there's an, the emphasis is not on what people are doing. It's about the emptiness that exists in that space, or at least the apparent emptiness. And so the pacing seems to sit with an Australian sensibility that is almost at odds with an American, you know, generic sensibility. And that was one of the things that I loved about it. I thought the pace was 100% perfect. Mm. And it wasn't, it wasn't, I'm doing an American genre in Australia. It was, no, no, this is a completely um, distinct Australian genre yeah. that might borrow a little bit from America, but it's its own thing. It's not a copy. So true. And I love that, um, you know, if we think about it in terms of it being a pursuit narrative and it being a Western and following some of those conventions, um, I like that there's never any doubt that Sam Kelly, played by Hamilton Morris, and I think it was very good, um, great performance, yes. brilliant. But I think mm. that there was never any doubt that he was going to be able to outsmart them and outrun them. Yeah. And the fact that it's slow pacing just suggests that there's no point at all in trying to, to chase um, an Indigenous person on his own land yeah. um, because they're foreigners and yeah. they don't know how to um, to navigate it. Yeah. Um, and that that is really powerful and that kind of says, you know, can, I guess, justify why the pacing is slow because yeah. it's not about is he going to be caught, it's about so much more than that. There, there's such a, a... There's a really key character in that film, I think. Um, his name's Archie and he, he plays the tracker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was dead set my my favourite. I thought he was incredible, played by this guy called Gibson John. Uh, and, you know, Archie is one of those very, very interesting characters who's sort of got a foot in both camps and and we're never quite sure which side he's actually playing on. So that on the one hand, there's a sense that he's trying to protect some of the other Aboriginal characters in the in the narrative. And at the same time, he's also leading the charge to try and capture Sam Kelly and and he was such a, a fascinating character who was trying to do two things at once and almost can't succeed at either. Mm. Um, and and for me, his the, his position within that story was was one of the most um, fascinating elements of that story. Yeah, um, I have another quote from Warwick Thornton that I wanted to to mention here. So he did an interview with Four Three Online, and he said. I can't remember what the question was, but he said, I'm not trying to heal a country. I'm trying to include a country. And yeah. I thought that's, you know, that speaks to what he's doing with this story and why mm. some of the storytelling devices might, you know, might not work in yeah. terms of it being um, within the genre or um, mm. just a straight narrative because he's just trying to do do something else that yeah. maybe we're not quite comfortable with or prepared for. Um, yeah, and I think... Um that kind of speaks to, I guess it's really smart that he uses Brian Brown and yeah. Sam Neill mm-hmm. uh, very quite well, I think, as sort of they are sort of in that group, kind of sort of ch- chasing um, the pair. And there's so many shots where it just looks like they just don't belong. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's so true. The they were great, and I did like Brian Brown's character because he's the sergeant, and so mm. he he just wants to to um, find this guy and execute him. That's yeah. what he wants because he's he is like mm. you know a guardian of Colin colonizers justice but he's also has some sensitivity and you can kind of see how isolated and lonely he is and how he's kind of also come to terms with the fact that if he can't perform his job as the sergeant um then what is the point of his life sort of and that that that's done really well what i thought was maybe not so great was the character of um what's his name harry march played by ewan leslie so he is sadly, I really like you and Leslie, and he's only in it for a little bit because um, he's the white man who who gets shot by by Sam, but he is kind of really badly written, I think, as I think the bad broad, guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's very. I mean, he's very believable. As we know, we know there are characters like yes. that. We know there are people who are incredibly racist and awful and abusive to women, um, and that all of those factors kind of mend into uh, meld into each other. But I thought that there, there was almost a justification for his behaviour that he was a returned soldier and that he had mm. um, PTSD. And I thought that was really badly done, particularly if I think of something like Mudbound, which has come out this year and is in the Oscars list, that that representation of PTSD and what that does to people was so much more nuanced than, than something like um, the, the – I keep wanting to call him Frederick March, but Harry, the Harry March, Harry March. character <laughs> – um, and I, I do think that was a bit unfortunate, but again, in servitude of it getting to a certain point where it became about the relationship to land, it, you know, it's fair enough. And it was not something that really impeded my experience of the film at the time. Mm. Yeah, in, in some ways that character feels a little bit familiar in, in terms of it being your monstrous racist. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and he fulfills all of the, the brief for, mm. you know, tick all of the boxes for the monstrous racist, in the way that the um, Jonathan Banks character does in Mudbound, I think. Yep. You know, there's oh, a sense yeah. of, you know, mm. yep, we've got all of the, the boxes ticked for that. Again, it, in Sweet Country, I wasn't upset or affected by that. I mm. do think that there are elements of the script every now and again that just went a bit wrong. I We obviously can't spoil, but I was mm. 100% in, but literally the last line of the film was where I went, oh. oh I love that last line. A little bit too much. <laughs> I really loved it because I think obviously, I won't say what that line is, but they're commenting on the situation yeah. at hand. But also Warwick Thornton, I think, is also trying to ask okay. to think about that sort of beyond the confines of the film. So I kind of love that. I think there are some audiences that will kind of walk away going, hang on a minute. Yeah, some of these issues of colonialisation are still playing out today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's certainly what it's there for. I, mm. I just felt like it a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. One thing with the script that I also wanted to pick up was um, all of the female characters being silent throughout the film. Yeah. I get that, obviously, that's a comment on sort of the gender roles of the time, but I kind of wish that something happened with that. Um, whether it's um, his uh, Sam's wife, whose name I forget, but then also the publican Lizzie. character, Lizzie. Um, also sort of the, the woman that Brian Brown is pursuing in the pub. I wondered whether she was not going to talk at all throughout the film. And she does right? say a few things, but it's like her fourth scene or something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the, the final act, she starts mm. talking. I was like, she has a voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, and that kind of thing just stands out like a sore thumb in movies these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because of where we're yeah. at in terms of mm. receiving... Yeah. Films. I mean, um, at the same time, you know, that's a masculine world where, yeah. where you know, he's making the point, yeah. you know, 
women don't get to speak here. Yeah. Um, because that's the, the nature of that environment. And mm. so, you know, I, I think it's one of those battles where you say, yeah, yeah, yeah of course you want women to speak. Mm. But sometimes that silence can also be yeah. speaking as well. I mean, it, it, I almost kind of would have preferred that she didn't speak at all mm. or to speak more yeah. um, rather than just kind of give us a couple of lines. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I wanted to, to just touch on was it's kind of really rich um, relationship with film and yeah. the history of film, which I really loved. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a, a sequence where uh, they play the story of the Kelly Gang, the 1906 film. Um, for listeners who mightn't be aware, the very first feature-length <laughs> film in the world. Go Australia. Go Australia was, was <laughs> ours. Um, and uh, most of that has deteriorated now, but we've still got you know, about 20 minutes or so left of that that film. And that's projected um, in front of a crowd who are all applauding these criminals. And, you know, mm. it's the story of Ned Kelly, uh, who is a, a famous bushranger in, in Australia, um, who frankly did a whole lot of killing and murdering and robbing, uh, but somehow we turned him into a folk hero. Uh, and there's this whole emphasis on our celebration of that idea of, you know, the criminal as being uh, somehow admirable. And then that plays in this awesome contrast between um, Ned Kelly in the film and Sam Kelly in Sweet Country, mm. who, you know, because he's black, can in no way be celebrated and just has to be hunted and killed. Mm. Yeah, that's really uh, incredible. And I think a very important inclusion. And, um, you know, I was kind of surprised. I didn't realise that it was set in 1929. And so when they were playing that, I thought perhaps it was, you know, 1910 or something. Yeah. But um, that that it was made in 1906 and that he was so quickly kind of made into a saint, yeah. um, oh. an outback saint, this murderer, um, in a part of our mythology is, is so great. And that, you know, even... Um, 25 years later or 23 years later in the film, he's, you know, that's still happening and that's, yeah. that's mm. still kind of existing. Yeah. Um, and it's so blatantly hypocritical. Mm. And, and I think the film also has this nice relationship with Jeddah, which is a, a kind of key mm. Australian film from 1955, Australia's very first colour film that is also a pursuit narrative uh, that, you know, structurally somewhat different, but... Uh, features a kind of pursuit of essentially the Aboriginal woman and the Aboriginal man as they head into territories and boundaries that even uh, the Aboriginal people can't step into because of kind of tribal boundaries. So I like the fact that it had this, um, that it was situated so clearly in Australian film history. Mm. Really loved that. But at the same time, really felt contemporary, felt really fresh and sort of starts to structure this beautiful new Australian genre. Mm. Um, that I was super yeah, I love because there's a scene when Archie says he, they kind of reach the boundaries of Archie's country, and he's, Archie's like, "I can't go any further." And I love that because I felt like I learned something about Indigenous culture in, in sort of that aspect. Yeah, it didn't just you know say that they're all a one one people, mm. um, and that, that you know everyone is comfortable everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, I think it's pretty clear that we all thought it was pretty terrific and yep. you know it started playing here in australia at the moment and will probably um roll out in specialty cinemas i would assume internationally it's I already got so. a good it's got a good uh, kind of recommendation from from the award at venice so hopefully mm. uh, more people outside of australia get to see this film it's that time of year again the time of year we all maybe love, even though some of us might love to hate it even more. It's the lead-up to the 90th Academy Awards, 
And even if we get awfully tired of awards season mania and think this is all about Hollywood self-congratulating its industry, it's still valuable to take note of who and what is nominated and why this might be the case. Amongst the slate of 2018 Academy Awards nominees in a ceremony which judges films released in 2017 is a rather surprisingly diverse selection given the past number of years that have seen an intense discussion focus on diversity and receive overall little response from the Academy. But after expanding the demographic of its eligible members and last year's Best Picture win for Moonlight, this year voters seem to have gotten some things right. Um, Mark, what are some of the most important things you see happening amongst this year's nominees? Uh, how do I start? Um, <laughs> look, I, I think first off, I just want to give a bit of a kind of outline of the way that I make sense of the Oscars yep. um, before I dive into kind of what they've actually done. Um, I think that I actually really love the Oscars, even though I know they're garbage. So I don't look at them and I don't think people should look at them as the best of anything. Because they're not. Mm. Um, they're not actually about the best in cinema, although sometimes they kind of stumble ass backwards into, indeed, the best in cinema. It's more about what Hollywood wants to say about itself. And so the narrative is never what's the best. Mm. It, the narrative is always here's who we are and what we believe in. So yeah. the awards say more about what how Hollywood conceives of itself not as as uh, any kind of indication as to what was the best in cinema. So in that respect, I think we can look at these nominees and say, well, okay, Hollywood wants to address the fact that there's a diversity problem, that there's always been a diversity problem, but it's only becoming an issue now. Mm. So now they need to construct themselves as people who believe in diversity. And so now we've got a, a, a more diverse range of uh, films and actors and technicians. But I don't know whether that means that Hollywood has changed. I think it's just that Hollywood is presenting a narrative of themselves as having changed. What do you think, Stuart? Am oh, I being mean? No, I totally agree. I It's such a stressful time of year because you know the Academy Awards is rubbish and you know that the voting process is completely flawed. Um, you know that there's so many brilliant performances and brilliant films that get fallen by the wayside because they don't have the money or they don't have the backing of a, a prominent studio supporting their campaign. But in saying that, I'm so invested in the Academy Awards. So it's this real tension between wanting to hate it and just sort of not get too caught up in it, but then also being so obsessed and being so driven um, for your favourite films to win. So do you guys watch it? Yes. Every time? Every time. Mm, me too. Sometimes. <gasps> I don't always. Sometimes I'll just watch the best of clips on YouTube later. <laughs> you mean you don't sit through the speeches? <laughs> I love it. Well, I used to um, sometimes me and some friends have Oscar parties where yes. we all vote and we all oh, try yeah, to predict. Oh, yeah, we used to go yeah. to the same one, I think. Yeah. Um, Louise Sheedy's Oscar parties. Yeah, Shout then out to she her. Then she moved to Canberra. Um, <laughs> And so it would be a competition who would win the most. And I won twice in a row. As I said, I'm very invested. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with you, Stewie, that I think it um, really is kind of really fun and really great to get involved. But I also agree 
that in putting some films and some people up on a pedestal and saying we believe that these are the best, whether or not they actually do believe that they're the best or that they just they want to project that about themselves, this is Hollywood, you know, that, that a whole lot of things get excluded. And that, yeah. that's really unfortunate, you know. In... It sort of reminds me a little bit of, like, reality TV, which is a, <laughs> another bit of a favourite of mine, in that you get some really clear heroes and villains and, you know, I'm barracking for this particular actor or this particular film but I hope it doesn't go to that other person. And it's this kind of fairly infantile <laughs> kind of structure where you go, I'm on team Francis McDormand and I'm definitely not on team Meryl Streep or whatever. Yeah. That it's a kind of ridiculous, you know, dog and pony show where you yeah. just sort of play along and then almost immediately you forget it. Mm. So it's like the end of the reality TV show that you've really been invested in, the next day you don't care about it. Anymore. Yeah. Because there's always such an awful delay in Academy um, Award films being distributed within Australia. A lot of the time, I guess, we come to these films already knowing the buzz, already knowing who the Best Picture nominees are. So you go to these films judging them. I loved Call Me By Your Name, so I'm going to go to Three Billboards and judge that against Call Me By Your Name. And so I find, and we'll probably talk about this when we get to Three Billboards, I find that when I go to these films, I'm probably having stronger positive or stronger negative feelings than what I would if I would see it in the middle of the year. Yeah. Um, so I think I really dislike Three Billboards, but I think the reason why I dislike it so passionately is because people are saying that it is the best film of the year when it's mm. clearly not. All right. So let's. how about we kick off with a quick run over the Best Picture nominees and then we can talk about Three Billboards because I know that mm. we both have... Thoughts, Stuart, don't we? <laughs> Many thoughts. Yes. So the nominees for Best Picture are Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes. Um, what you're saying about Three Billboards is kind of it's ticking boxes in my brain as well. I think that I probably like the film better than you do, although mm. I don't think that it's, it should even be in the conversation at all, but okay. Mm. Um, part of why I think it's there is that there becomes a push where – a film plays at a, a festival where nobody's heard of it mm. and nobody has expectations of it, and it actually does well, at which point then it gets this kind of incredible, you know, outswelling of mm. support that is not commensurate with the actual skill of the film. Mm. So then it becomes, have you heard about three billboards? We've all got to go and see three billboards. And then people get on board with that train even though it's maybe not as exceptional as you know, probably even half of the films on that yeah. picture list. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of really great, uh, I guess, online criticisms of the film in terms of just what exactly is, I guess, wrong with it. Um, maybe wrong is probably not the right word. But um, obviously we all agree that Frances McDormand is great That's in the film. True. She's great. Um, and if she wins, I wouldn't be too devastated at the other nominees losing. Um, but I think the actual script itself, I think, has major flaws. Um, there's that whole redemption arc with Chris Rockwell's character, which I don't buy. Um, 
there's issues of no one getting arrested for anything. There's a scene when no, sh- somebody gets arrested for weed. That's it. But so, I mean, obviously this is not a spoiler because it features in the, the trailer. Um, there's a bit where a character gets thrown out the window of a first floor building through the glass, lands on the ground right in front of the, the chief of police. And the person who does it says, I did it. And he doesn't get arrested. It's just, it's mind-numbing. There are so many issues with this film that the plot just doesn't really do anything with. There's issues of domestic violence being used as a joke, um, where Frances McDormand is this so-called, she's like this feminist hero in the film, but then she lets her abusive husband go off with a younger woman um, and she doesn't really even think about it. And so domestic violence kind of gets thrown there and then forgotten about. Same thing with racism and... Um, the issue of uh, Peter Dinklage's character just being used as a, a joke because he um, because of his size. Um, there are so many kind of issues and themes that get thrown in there and then forgotten about. Nothing happens. I think that's really... I haven't seen the film, but uh, from what you're saying, I think that is a really irresponsible thing for a film to do. Yeah. To raise, you know... Um, yeah these really serious issues mm. and to not do anything at all. I yeah. think that's pretty irresponsible. And I yeah. do get very angry at other films that do that. Yeah. See, I, I, uh, I, I'm not completely convinced of that in that when there is, a, you know, say something like domestic violence is, occurs in the script. Yeah. The racism is the other, or, I guess. Or, or racism yeah. or any of those others. I mean, I mean, just because it's present, do you then derail the entire film and, turn it into a film about domestic violence. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean no. it's one of those kind of <laughs> balancing things. Mm. Well, I you'd was, hope that a good script could kind of deal with it. At least encapsulate it mm. neatly. Yeah. yeah. Which I don't think it's Which is the issue, at. yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't have as much of an issue with the whole Sam Rockwell redemption arc that occurs. Um, I think that where it falls apart, because I, I kind of almost have a problem with an idea of, this guy's racist, so therefore he has to constantly be nothing but the bad guy all the time. Yeah. Because, you know, I think we've all known some racists, and they're awful, terrible people, but they also can do kind things. Yeah. Maybe not to people that they're racist against, but they still are capable of goodness, even though they're morally and ethically repulsive. So I don't have a problem with that. My problem was everybody goes through the same structural change. Mm. You know, poor Frances McDormand, isn't she a sad person and she's really had a hard life? Actually, maybe she's a terrible human being. You know, Sam Rockwell <laughs> is a terrible human being. But you know what? Maybe he's a little bit cuddly. Here comes John Hawkes, who's, you know, the, the abusive husband. What a scumbag, domestic violence loser, actually kind of really understands people <laughs> really nicely. And so it starts to feel like, you know, my response to Crash, you know, the, the infamous winner of, of many years ago which was, we're all a little bit racist, but we're all a little bit not. And that that entire film was just about taking people and flipping them. Mm. I'm, I'm not racist, but I'm a little bit racist. Yeah. This film's like, I'm a scumbag, but I'm a little bit awesome. I mean, can we talk about, like, to move on from this film, I think, <laughs> yeah, not sorry. about this film. Yes. Like, yeah. why is it nominated for so much? You know, I mean, it's nominated for Best Original Screenplay, which I think you both are, think that that's an atrocious decision by the Academy. It's nominated... I mean, is it only nominated for Best Picture because Frances McDormand is nominated for Best Actress? Like, is that the only reason? You know, we, I mean, we, there's so much overlap, and there always is overlap. There used to be 
less overlap, you know, 50 years ago. But now there, there seems to be, and now that there's mm. 10 um, Best Picture nominees rather than five. Yeah. Um, but is that the only reason why it's kind of in the awards discussion because of Frances McDormand? I mean, I've heard no one say that she, she's not worthy of winning, although mm. I do, I think she's got the most buzz from all of those, the Best Actress nominees. But I mm. do think that there are other people who could perhaps win. Um, but is that why? I mean, if it's so flawed as a film. I mean, I, I didn't find it hugely flawed. I enjoyed it, but saw that it wasn't quite holding mm. together the way that it should. I think your the point about the Francis McDormand performance is that it's so so incredible. It's yeah. so big, and she's and she's well liked. I yeah. mean, you don't see a film with her in it and not think, oh, you're kind of fantastic. That I think that there might be something to that that pushes mm. that film. And and her skill with dialogue mm. kind of manages to gloss over yeah. some of those issues. And I think that that's true with, you know, Woody Harrelson, with John Hawkes, with um, Sam Rockwell. They're all so good mm. that they kind of sell a slightly dodgy script. I mean, the other thing is like The Post, which has been nominated for Best Picture, which is... You know, it's nothing film. It's fine. I have, I, you know, it's fine. I actually thought it was quite good and I enjoyed it, but I forgot about it immediately after seeing it. And I think that the script is not really all that great and that it does an injustice to the the story of the Washington Post. Um, But is it only nominated because it's a Steven Spielberg film and, you know, what else are you going to do? Not nominate Steven Spielberg? I don't know. And then Meryl Streep, obviously, can we just stop nominating her? She doesn't need 27 nominations or whatever. <laughs> Doubt Meryl at your own peril. <laughs> oh, well, when she got nominated for Into the Woods a few years ago, that, that was, was the like, point where on. I was like, stop it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I th- what I think is really interesting, these, this year's awards and last year's, is I think because the, the makeup of the Academy is slowly changing, mm-hmm. I think new types of films are being nominated now. So I think maybe with something like Three Billboards and The Post, those are kind of old school mm. Oscar bait, but now we're getting new types of Oscar bait. Get out, call me by your name, shape of water, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so I think it's an interesting tradition where there's two types of Oscar baits now, I think. Yeah. And the shape of water, I really loved and enjoyed, and I think it's mm. a beautiful piece of filmmaking. I do think that it's probably the most palatable or of the, um, you know, maybe newish type of mm. nominees. Kind that of most. Yeah, yeah, and so maybe that is has the strongest chance to win Best Picture, Best Director. I do hope that other films win. I mean, I think The Shape of Water is pretty excellent, but mm. I think things like Lady Bird or Phantom Thread maybe deserve mm. to win more. Mm. Um, and I feel like some of this conversation, you know, there was that whole conversation around the Golden Globes about why, um, you know, Lady Bird was directed but Greta Gerwig was not, and she was nominated, sorry, and she has been nominated for the mm. Oscars. And that maybe that was because there was a backlash, and people said that her her directing her directorial um, you know skill was not recognised in a really modest story. Yeah. You know that it, that it, they get more attention if it's something like Dunkirk, which is yeah. so so impressive. So when I, I look at that list of nominees, I, I'm not thinking about which one's good mm. as to which one's going to win. It's it's which yeah. one has the story. And mm. the post is in there not because the post is a good film. No. Yeah. The post is in there because it's saying something about the Trump era. And yeah. that's yeah. why it's there. Um, Call Me By Your Name is in there because it's a good film, but Beautiful. it won't win because yeah. we already had gay last year. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, do you, think, yeah, yeah. you can't do too much yeah. gay. So we've got to give that the boot. <laughs> Lady Bird, I think, is a, is a real possibility. I don't think it's even close to, to one of the best films that I've seen 
um, over the last 12 months. But I think it represents something that's really important, mm. which is why I kind of, when we start thinking about the best director, that's why I feel like Greta Gerwig, who is amazing, and, and mm. this is not to take anything away from her, it, it, it's that that's the better story. Yeah. That's the story that they'll want to tell. Yeah. In a Me Too sort of era, they need to say, we recognise this and we will award it because that's who we are. Mm. Um, and so, as I said at the, at the start of this segment, like I don't think it's got anything to do with goodness, badness or anything else. It's like, what is the story that we tell about ourselves? And I think the story this year will be, you know, we believe in women. Yeah. Um, and so, so. I mean, the other, the other thing that has been pointed out by a lot of people is that Mudbound has quite a lot of nominations, which is great. And I saw Mudbound at Sundance last January um, and I loved it. And immediately I said, I want Mary J. Blige to win an Oscar or I think the Sundance Award, but, you know, that from going from one to the other. And so I kind of, I do hope she wins, although I really would like, um, what's her face from Lady Bird? Le- Laurie Metcalf. Oh, Laurie, Laurie Metcalf, Metcalf yeah. to win. She's yeah. so She's good in that great, film. Um, yeah. has such a great, I mean, they both act with their faces and, um, yeah. I mean, with, their, their dialogue as well, but they both mm. have such beautiful presentations yeah. of, of hurt mothers. Yeah, um, definitely. That, that category is literally going to be between Alison Janney and Laurie Metcalf. Yeah. And I think Alison Janney will win. Um, Which, anyway, but yeah. sorry, I just wanted to, like, sorry. Mudbound, um, that Dee Rees is not nominated for Best yeah. Director, and that that was a huge oversight, and is just because she's a black woman, and, you know, that they've got their one, their white woman in there, yeah. so that's mm. all they needed to do, and yeah. that, that it's a real um, flaw, that even though Mudbound has been nominated for so many things, um, Best Adapted Screenplay, um, you know, for instance, that, that it hasn't been nominated for Best Director, and that's an unfortunate... Oversight, perhaps. Yeah. And a lot of the discussion as well, from what I've seen online, it's as if there's only ever room for one woman in the, the oh, category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, get rid of Christopher Nolan. Yeah, chuck Dee's uh, reason there, I think. I, yeah. I, I, I would argue against that, because I'm yeah. not a huge fan of Mudbound. I don't yeah. think it's that good. I think it's it's okay. Um, I think it's half a good film and half mm. a kind of rubbish film, to be honest. Um, and I loved Dunkirk, and that might make me uncool, yeah. but I thought that film was extraordinary. Oh, it is, yeah. Um, and, and I was just really kind of wowed by that that mm. film. Uh, and not just its scale, but its structure was just just incredible. I, I was, I'm kind of almost Team Dunkirk. It won't win. It doesn't have a story, mm. but... Right. Yeah. See, I'm, I hope Mudbound wins, and I think that Mudbound's structure was great and in kind of balancing, and this is where I really hope that it wins best screenplay, that, you know, it balanced the... the Stories, the multiple stories and multiple perspectives, mm. um, really, really well. Do we want to quickly just go through give, the categories? Yeah, give, give me, give me a quick um, call on who's going to win Best Actor: Timothy Chalamet, Daniel Day Lewis, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, Gary Oldman, and Denzel Washington. Can I quickly a quick rant? Quick rant. I think Gary Oldman's performance is actually pretty average. Um, because he's wearing he's wearing the fat suit. He's all made up to look like Churchill. I, when I was watching it. I found that all of that kind of on his face was actually hiding his face. Mm. His face isn't very expressive throughout the film. He performs mainly through his voice, I find, and the makeup. But, so, he, but he's doing a biography. Yeah. Um, and, Which is obviously... And, 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 and we need to say <laughs> Churchill was cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I, But I just... I mean, in, type, in comparing him with uh, Tim, Timothée Chalamet... I think it's Timothy. Timothy. Um... I hope that Chalamet wins. Yeah, because so there's so much more going on with his 
um, his performance, the way he holds his body, the way he, um, the way his sort of expressions change throughout the film, um, from being this really kind of cool guy to actually being really wounded and and heartbroken towards the end. It's it's an incredible performance. Like historically, the Oscars have, have always gone to like the young hot girl will win it yeah. and the young hot guy doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, they give it to kind of mature men mm. like the Oscar voters um, and the hot chick so that true. the mature Oscar voters would like to kind of yeah. shag. So, you know, uh, whether... Daniel we, Day-Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd be I mean, fine if he won. But look, I do want yeah. Tim- Timothy Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Anyway, actor in a supporting role. Willem Dafoe, Woody Harrelson, Richard Jenkins, Christopher Plummer, Sam Rockwell. I would like Willem Dafoe to win. Uh, Woody Harrelson played Woody Harrelson in uh-huh. Three Billboards, I'm going to say. Um, Sam Rockwell will win it, I think. Mm. Uh, but I would like Willem Dafoe. Okay. I think he's pretty fantastic in I the Florida I wonder whether the, the narrative around the problematic nature of Sam Rockwell's character will do him in. It's an interesting backlash. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would like Richard Jenkins, but... Yeah. That's the only film um, performance that I've seen of that list, so I would also like him to win. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I would really like to see The Florida Project. Um, so I'd be, Yeah. I, I, sadly, I think because it hasn't received a lot of nominations, I don't think it received any nominations in no. other categories, I think it's too much of a, um, a gap for him to make up. Mm. Uh, yeah, Richard Jenkins, I think, is also with a chance, just because it's been so well-loved yeah. by the Academy. Yeah. They're going to want to give it something. Yeah. But I, you know, probably literally looking at that list of Best Picture nominees, I can call me by your name to the best, but mm. Shape of Water is probably second. Yeah. And it's just, I, I mean, I have that thing in my head where what's the story? Mm. And, you know, Shape of Water is is terrific. I don't think it's that extraordinary. I think it's good, though. Mm. Um and I wonder, like, what is that saying about Hollywood if you choose that? Is we believe in creativity, we believe in having sex with fishmen. Um, like, what's the <laughs> story <doesn't>? here? <laughs> who, who doesn't? Um, you know, so, you know, I, I kind of see more of a narrative for something like Ladybird, but mm. I don't know. Mm. What about actress in a leading role? So, Frances McDormand, we think, is probably going to win, but Sally Hawkins, Margot Robbie, Saoirse Ronan, and Meryl Streep. Oh, it's so many great performances, apart yeah. from Meryl, I'd say. I think it's um, a good performance, but it's an average you know, Yeah. Um, I, I honestly can't pick my favourite because I think they're all so great. Cisha Ronan is incredible. Uh, uh, yeah, there's just so many layers to her performance. Uh, that guilt, I think mm. she kind of exudes as well, I think is really interesting. Margot Robbie... Um, once no. again, oh really? You're no. not a fan of my? I haven't Robbie heard anyone else say they think they think she's good, but that it's just not going to win. That it wins. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. She's it's like welcome to the club, Margot. Now shut up. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I kind of want Saoirse Ronan to win because she's been nominated three times, yeah. and it's yeah. about time that she she wins. But I, I mean, that. also it's a great performance. Yeah. yeah, and I think, but that it's such an interesting narrative that where we get someone like Gary Oldman, where it's like it's it's his time, he's yeah. put his dues in. But then we get someone who's younger, like Cecia Ronan, who has also put her time in. Yeah. She's delivered great performance after great performance, but because she's younger, that narrative of it's her time isn't there, which mm. I think is really interesting. Yeah, it's it's one of those cases where she would win. Like the first time she's nominated, but now mm. she's kind of moved into established, and that's almost she's in Kate Winslet territory. Yeah, only twenty three. I know. 
Yeah. And I, I would argue... What, a, that, what an yeah. underachiever. I know. <laughs> so um, lazy. <laughs> I, I liked her more in Brooklyn. I loved Brooklyn. I was one of the people who was a real Brooklyn stan, and I thought she was incredible. I still think she's good in Lady Bird, but I think Frances McDormand will take it. Yeah. And what about actress in a supporting role? Mary J. Blige, Alison Janney, Leslie Manville, great performance, Laurie Metcalf, Octavia Spencer. I'm, I'm pitching for Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, um, same. And I... Don't think it'll be her. I think it'll be Alison Jane. Yeah. Well, one thing with I, Tonya, which has been spoken about a bit online, that I think is a bit awkward, is that Alison Janney's character is a lot of it is played up for laughs, and even a, a lot of um, billboards around Melbourne. I'm saying it's all about Alison Janney as this really kooky old woman, uh, a bit like maybe B. Arthur in The Golden Girls, perhaps. <laughs> but in actual fact, she's an abuser. There's a real dark side to her character, and a lot of this discussion around her, I think, is completely missing that. I think this film has been marketed really interestingly. Like, yeah. a lot of people feel um, confronted by the black comedy, mm. by the fact that it is about this abusive, you know, her abusive home life and all of that, that they want it to either be drama or comedy yeah. um, and can't can't deal with both. Yeah. I, I think it, it it's... Uh, it falls down because it doesn't marry, uh, it doesn't sort of blend the two very well. Uh, Lauren Carroll Harris has a really great review of the film where she she um, she thinks all the performances are great, but she says the the film needs a few more beats in the narrative for us mm. to dwell on what we're saying because it goes from domestic violence straight to a joke from Alice and Janney really quickly. Um, and I think sort of that's one issue I have with her performance where Laurie Metcalf. I think it's she's I think there's so much so many layers to her performance. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a much more subtle one. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I'd like to see her win. Yeah. Yeah. And script quickly. Script. So original screenplay, we have actually I don't think I've seen a lot of these. Uh The Big Sick, Get Out, Lady Bird, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. I'd like Get Out to win. So would I. I. Yeah. Yeah. But I reckon if if Greta Gerwig doesn't get director, she'll get script. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah, not quite yet, but we'll give. I don't think it's true. I also don't think Get Out will win for anything else. So it's (laughs) like, are they which which of the minority um, nominees are they going to give it to? This is true. Yeah. Turns out I have seen all of these except The Big Sick, Mm. (laughs) which is incredible. I really like The Big Sick a lot. Mm. Um, um, anyway, and adapted screenplay, I would like Mudbound to win. I think it's a very good adaptation. Yeah, I think Call Me by Your Name will win that. Um, I've heard a, I've heard um, someone say that they read the screenplay and that it wasn't very good, and that it, it showed what the skill Guadagnino had had um, given mm. in the directing of well, that screenplay. Yeah. So that's my only reservation about it. Yeah. But I haven't read it myself, so I don't know. But one, one thing. I think sort of obviously it's all very strategic and tactical with how they give the awards out. I think for the screenplays, it seems like they're not necessarily voting on the quality of the screenplays. They're giving awards to films that they want to give something to, but that aren't going to win the director or the best yeah. picture. Yeah. So, which is why Three Billboards is in there. <laughs> right. Even <laughs> though it's a terrible screenplay. Yes. Okay. Good. Well, enjoy the Oscars, everyone. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. 
But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. That means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. Well, following on from our Oscar discussion, one category we didn't talk about was Best Cinematography. And so we're going to dedicate an entire segment on one of those nominees, and that nominee is Roger Deakins. Uh, Deakins began his career as a cinematographer making documentaries in England and in Africa before moving into fiction filmmaking with early credits like Sid and Nancy, 1984 and White Mischief. He has been nominated and won numerous awards throughout his career, but he's never taken home an Academy Award. This year he's nominated for Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049, which was the very first film that we talked about on this podcast. So it seems like this is as good a time as any to look back on his incredible career as a cinematographer and some of the key films and his collaboration with some key filmmakers of the last 35 years. So, Stuart, do you think he's nominated for Blade Runner 2049 this year? Is he going to get it this time round? I don't think he will. Oh, okay. I think there's going to be a big upset because uh, I think very similar with our discussion on Willem Dafoe where uh, I think because Blade Runner 2049, I mean, it picked up a lot of technical nominations, but it didn't really, um, I guess, get a lot of nominations in the big categories. Mm. So I think there is the risk that once again, because... He's nominated for a film that wasn't wholly embraced by the Academy that, once again, he might miss out. Obviously, I would love him to win because the cinematography in Blade Runner 2049 is incredible. Um, it, it's That's the best part of the film, I think. Uh, I think... So what, what I did is I looked at um, Blade Runner 2049 and I also kind of thought about this in relation to Prisoners, another Villeneuve film... And at first, I, the way I, I looked at them was completely different films. Obviously, they are. Um, because obviously, when you walk out of Blade Runner 2049, there are just... I mean, it's just so beautiful that you really kind of mull over what you saw. And I think it needs a repeated viewing to really take it all in. Where, looking back at pris- on Prisoners, I didn't really remember the cinematography. It didn't sort of jump out as being beautiful. But... The more I, I went back and looked at that film, and I realised they're very similar in how they um, paint this uh, this you know, bleakness uh, in with the environment, um, particularly with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It's this sort of post apocalyptic world. Um, even uh, Jared Leto's Man Cave, uh, the way that is shot, it it's a very it's a very stark environment that um, is very inhospitable to humanity. I would say. Um, same thing with uh, prisoners, the way he uses the environment, the rain and the snow uh, to really um, 
I guess, sort of uh, make the, the humans really uncomfortable in that space. There is really one great shot in Prisoners that I want to um, uh, talk about. It's known as the tree shot, uh, which uh, there's a lot of online bloggers kind of raved about this <laughs> shot. Um, and when uh, Deacons and Villeneuve were shooting Prisoners, um, all of the other cast and crew um, thought they were they had lost their minds because, I mean, the cast of Prisoners is incredible. You've got Viola Davis, you've got um, Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Maria Bello, um, and so they're all on set, but uh, Villeneuve and Deacons, they're just shooting a tree. <laughs> um, but it's now one of the best shots in the film yeah. because you've got, it's at the very start of the film, obviously uh, two little girls get kidnapped, um, and so we've got all of the, the parents having a Thanksgiving dinner um, and celebration inside, but there's a shot outside where the kids go out to play um, and we've got the sort of a sound of a trumpet inside and then the camera just focuses on this tree <laughs> and the sort of the soundscape changes and... Um, and you know something's up. You don't know really that they've been kidnapped yet. But uh, writing about this, uh, um, uh, talking about this shot, uh, Villeneuve uh, says that this shot was designed not to be understood, but to be felt. It has a subconscious feeling that can vibrate in your soul. It functions like a dread, an omen. It's like when you suddenly have a bad feeling, but you don't understand what it means. It's linked with intuition. And I think that's the way I think of uh, uh, Roger Deacon's work. That's what he does. He, he kind of, he doesn't show or tell a lot of the time. He just creates this, this sense of feeling and usually dread. Yeah. I think I, I looked at um, the work that he did with Sam Mendes um, and I kind of found something quite similar uh, in terms of, I mean, I looked at the, the three films that he's done with, with Mendes and that's Jarhead, Revolutionary Road and Skyfall. Uh, and just kind of working through those films, they're all three radically different films. And it's almost like he takes, there are connections between them visually, but he's also completely adapting to this idea of what is the environment. And that seems mm. to be the thing that he's, that was coming through what you've just said about Prisoners and, and Blade Runner. Um, that's that's what I was taking away from looking at these Mendes films. A really, really keen understanding of what an environment is. But he uses different, strategies he uses different toys in each film so you sit down and you watch jarhead and that film is is completely all about color you know and it, i don't know whether you've seen the film it's, it's not too bad it's a kind of war film that doesn't really involve any war it's kind of people that go off to war and then just wait uh, and mm. literally they have like you know one quick battle i think they do like two days of fighting and then they they're done their year is over uh and Deacon sort of colour codes this, this incredible pristine whiteness at the beginning. Once they're in the desert, it's just this bland, empty beigeness. Their uniforms are beige, the sand is beige, the tents are beige. <laughs> it's just this big beige kind of vacuum. But then by the end, it becomes this incredible kind of blood red um, skies and, mm. and incredible shoots of um, flame, this deep, incredible orange. And so that it feels like you sort of walk through these different environments, a kind of basic training uh, image and then a, a desert landscape image and then a kind of war destruction image that he uses these kind of incredible palettes mm. to try and set up those environments. And when I moved on to Revolutionary Road, a film that I hadn't seen before, which I really quite loved, um, 
that's not about journeys of you know soldiers that's about being trapped in suburbia and everything is so sterile and mm. white and reflective you know the suburban house the the uh the workplace there, there's something squeaky and un, kind of um superficial about every single thing about that film and so you get this great contrast between the way that he's shooting those environments and then the the destruction of that marriage that's the center of that narrative so, you know, I sort of came away from that thinking, wow, it's kind of like he's using um, image to create this static world, which was completely different from what I got from Jahi. Mm. And then last night I sat down and watched Skyfall again. I don't, have you guys seen Skyfall? Because yeah, I'm, I'm here to tell you, that's a, I can't stand James Bond. Couldn't care less about <laughs> yeah. James Bond. That film is really quite amazing. I saw it in the cinema. So beautifully shot. And yeah. good Lord, when particularly having seen now Blade Runner 2049 and you look at Skyfall in, in the light of that film. Yeah, wow. Yeah. There's all of this stuff that Deakins plays with, with kind of the superimposition of image on buildings, on structures, on architecture, um, the use of kind of action set pieces to, to be almost painted by other projection from elsewhere. There's a, an incredible scene, I think it's in uh, Bangkok, uh, where Bond is, you know, shooting people, whatever. And he's in this big glass structure and there are these jellyfish that are being projected on the wall. Mm. And it reminds me a lot of the sort of um, projection stuff that he does in Blade Runner 2049. Um, and so he's doing a lot of these kind of incredible things about playing with environments and the way that environments work and where the people are positioned within yeah. those environments. It's just, he's quite extraordinary. And there's the shots in uh, the Scottish Highlands. Yeah. Which just incredible. Yeah, which yeah. really extraordinary. Mm. Um, you know, in, in fact, there's a couple of set pieces. There's another one in Macau that is all basically just lit by lanterns. And it's mm. this beautiful orange kind of glow that comes from all of these kind of lanterns that are, that are surrounding this building. Yeah, because in Blade Runner, he uses a lot of the set design um, to reflect light. Yeah. So in yeah. the... Uh, Jared, Jared Leto's man cave. There's the water reflecting on yeah. the ceiling. There's all of the glow from the buildings in the marketplace. There, yeah. There's a sequence in Revolutionary Road that I just loved, even though it's not a pleasant sequence, where uh, Kate Winslet is having an affair with David Harbour and they have sex in a car and the camera is kind of behind Harbour's head and Kate Winslet's head. So you don't see their expression, but all you see is her face reflected in the, the window of the car. Wow. Yeah. And it's just, that's where the narrative is happening, kind of off to mm. the side of the frame in this kind of really blurry reflection. It's just incredible work. It's so interesting hearing you talk about the different things that he does with these other filmmakers. Because I sort of had a look at his relationship with uh, the Coen brothers. He's worked with them, I believe, ever since Barton Fink. Um, and A.O. Scott, in his review of No Country for Old Men, said of both Carter Burwell and Deacons that they've been collaborators for so long that they surely count as part of the non-biological Cohen fraternity. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, you kind of think, well, what is Roger Deakins doing in these films and how much of it is him and how much of it is the Cohen brothers because they, they work so closely with each other and they're, they're you know, so entwined. Um Anyway, I was having a look and, you know, I can't... A lot of the Coen Brothers films are kind of small films, small narratives, and Barton Fink, I, I really don't like it. Um, but he does really interesting things with the camera. Uh, 
I, and I did see this in a lot of the Coen Brothers films. You know, he'll often have swirling motion with the camera. And in, you know, in that dark, dank hotel where John Turturro is, uh, the way that he kind of makes it uh, alive and in a live space um, and a really vivid space where you can imagine awful things happening and someone kind of going insane, which is what happens to John Turturro. The, I think that the camera and what, what Roger Deakins does with light and darkness and shadow is all so important in that. But I just kind of recall all of these shots that are kind of um, from above that the twist and twirl and I don't know, just kind of create this, they, they give a bit of a, um, they add to the Coen brothers humor, I suppose, and help make the stories bigger than they are because all the Coen, yeah, all the Coen brothers stories are kind of about regular Joes um, and really insane things that happens to them. Um, And I think that that really helps. One of the things that I was thinking about when you talked about trees and the environment, I did some reading and uh, Roger Deakins said that his favourite shot that he's ever done with the Coen brothers, or maybe of all time, was in The Man Who Wasn't There, where... Um, This is a quote from him. It's where the wife of the guy who runs the clothing shop comes at night to see Billy Bob Thornton and talks about how her husband was abducted by aliens. Her face is really dark and the shadow of the trees is moving over Billy Bob. I just thought that worked really well, is is his quote. And so, you know, it's, again, maybe that story where the the narrative is happening in reflections or it's not happening Mm. um, in faces, it's happening elsewhere in the corner. In a really silly way, that quote and, you know, thinking about that shot reminded me of the opening shot of Intolerable Cruelty where George Clooney is kind of um, driving and he's just had his teeth whitened or whatever and he's... The, the trees that he's driving past are reflected in the car windscreen. It's a really silly shot, and it actually doesn't look all that impressive, but just thinking about what maybe what he does <laughs> yeah. with, with the camera and how he tries to always incorporate the surroundings um, to, yeah. to make things more interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm also kind of amazed by how, just in the, the films that we sort of had a bit of a quick survey over his career, and obviously he's done more films than what we've talked about, that he doesn't seem to kind of stick to a genre or even one specific style. The fact that he's so adaptable, you know, when I think about the three films that I, I saw, they were, you know, action film, domestic drama and mm. war film. But then you've also got kind of broad kind of silly comedies. Um, you know, you've got intense thrillers, um, science fiction, that it's not like he says, I, I'm in a wheelhouse and I'll mm. pretty much stay in the one area. It feels like... He's so adaptable to so many different genres and modes of storytelling. Yeah. Maybe that's why he hasn't won yet, because he doesn't have an iconic style. Yeah. Yeah. So no one recognises it or something, or they can't latch onto it easily. Yeah. I'm not sure. But, I mean, I just found just sitting down literally just watching three films of his, you know, straight away you you can see the way that they they connect. That's great. That, yeah. that it's clear that there's a really um, specific vision, even though he's got, you know, ten crayons and he might only play with two in one particular film, but he might carry one of those crayons into the next one and bring in some other kind of hue or other skill. Like, I, I was just incredibly impressed by how incredibly diverse his, his work is. Mm. Well... I guess that's Roger Deakins. Who knows if he's going to Who win? Who knows? Fingers crossed. Who knows? My, my theory, just to not to call back to our Oscar thing, I think <laughs> it's at that point where 
is it embarrassing we haven't given it to him yet? The answer yeah. is yes. Yes. And that's right. why I think you'll get it. Because they're like, we need to stop them bitching about the fact that he hasn't got one yet. So like, get off our back. Fine, yeah. Roger. Take the little gold man and nick off. <laughs> don't nick off. Keep making but, movies. But don't, yes, exactly. Um, but remember, for um, if you want to speak to us about kind of your favourite Roger Deakins films or kind of how you uh, have responded to his cinematography across that incredible career or indeed any of the other segments that we've covered uh, in today's show, just head to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash senses of cinema and leave a comment and um, we can maybe answer any questions or reply to any uh, takes that you have on the career of Roger Deakins or indeed the Oscars. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it a film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and we hope you can find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this February. Mark? Okay, like I'm going to talk about a film that didn't just light up February. It's lit up 2018 for me. I'm like, I know that this has been received well elsewhere, so it's not like I'm the crazy outlier who's suddenly discovered it. Paddington 2 is quite literally <laughs> one of the greatest films I've seen in the last five years. You two have not seen it, have you? I haven't, no. You are wrong. Wow. <laughs> um, I have not had more laughs in a film in I don't know how long. It is absolutely, almost completely perfect. Um, if you have never seen any Paddington, you know, it's not a bad idea to see the first one, which is really good and, and, and solid and fun. Uh, the second one, I think, is is even better. It's literally um, kind of Chaplin-esque in the way that it uses pratfalls. There's even a sequence where uh, Paddington finds himself essentially in that famous sequence from modern times where he gets caught in a series of cogs. Um, <laughs> the performances are absolutely beautiful. So Sally Hawkins and Hugh Bonneville are the parents. Uh, ben Wishaw voices Paddington. The villain is Hugh Grant and he's hilarious. Uh, I laughed like a lunatic for the entire time and in between was weeping like an infant. Wow. Um, so it's incredibly, almost embarrassingly moving <laughs> and at the same time overwhelmingly hilarious. It has this, and, and I think why it has received such great adulation, deservedly so, is that there's no cynicism about it. It's not this kind of like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, uh, isn't, isn't the world crap? It's actually, how about we all just be nice? And rather than it being this cloying, sentimental load of nonsense, it's like, yeah, you know what? Maybe we could stop sniping at each other and just be a little bit friendly. Um, in the screening that I saw, obviously it's a, a children's movie appropriate for adults and for children. In my screening, the kids were dead silent the entire time. And the only noise <laughs> were from the mothers and the fathers who were weeping wow. and, and laughing at the same time. And, and kids kept saying to them, Mummy, why are you crying? And all you could hear was Mum crying and laughing because she was laughing about Paddington 2 and crying about Paddington 2. That's so it great. is perfection. You have to see it. <laughs> what a recommendation. Yes. Stewie. Uh, well, I got two. Um, just quickly want to say that the screen-related thing that I'm obsessed with at the moment is uh, uh, Legend of Zelda, um, Breath of the Wind? Breath of the Wind. Um, or Breath of the Wild. Breath of the Wild. Um, it's a um, 
Nintendo Switch game that is just incredible. I've been playing it on my um, big screen TV and pausing it just to sort of look at how beautiful the screen is. Um, but one really fantastic screen-related thing I did was I went to the NGV, the National Gallery of Victoria, for... Um, their exhibit, The Trainial, um, and they've got an exhibit called Coming to a Screen Near You, where they get participants to bring in their favourite film, and they've set up a lounge room in one of the gallery spaces, and you've just got to sit in the gallery watching one of your favourite films. So I watched Clue, uh, the film from the 80s, featuring Leslie Ann Warren, Madeline Kahn, and Eileen Brennan. Um, <laughs> And it was a really weird experience because you're in this, like, something that's set up to be a private space, but it's very public. So people come up and sit next to you and watch it, and you talk about the film with strangers, and it was really wild. It was, um, yeah. Clue would be amazing to watch with yeah. a big crowd, with all of <laughs> yeah. the flames on your face. Did flames. people come up flames. and, like, watch over your shoulder? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. watching over your shoulder. You're talking to you. It's it's yeah. I don't think I'd bizarre. like that. It's really bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you feel like a zoo animal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you are. <laughs> it's kind of an amazing concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Um, well, mine. I kind of also have two, although they're related, and they're both also screen adjacent, not really screen related directly. But I read two books in the last month. Um, I read more than two books. (laughs) Well done. Um, Eloise learns how to read. Well, it is great because I don't often get a chance to read fiction. And so I have been using this kind of break, um, holiday time to, to do so. But I read Brooklyn, um, the Colm Tobin novel, which was made into a film that Mark mentioned earlier. Um, and I haven't seen the film, but I absolutely loved the book and it's kind of really quite plain in the way it's written, but I was so invested and it... I'm literally still thinking about it. I really want to know what the next part of her life was like after the book finishes. Um, It was just incredible. It blew me away. And now it's on SBS On Demand in Australia, the film. So I I need to see the film now. Um, I've read the book too and it is absolutely beautiful. And and I should say it's very restrained. Yeah. But it's really lovely. And, And I think the film captures that restraint and a lot of it just comes through Saoirse Ronan's face because that, I mean, that's a film that I really loved. But that narrative is about kind of longing mm-hmm. and belonging. And so much of that just comes through her performance mm. and not through the dialogue. Amazing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so I, I really have that on my list. But the other book that I read um, is called by another Irish author, Sebastian Barry, called Days Without End. Um, and he, some of his novels have been adapted into films. I don't know which ones. I can't remember, but they have. And the reason I'm listing it here is because I was talking about it with a friend and she just said, do you think that they'll make a film of it? And I'm like, I don't know. And I, I, it's so well written. This is a book, sort of a Western. It's set in the 1800s, 1850s, I think, um, about an orphan boy, an Irish-American um, orphan who meets another man. And it's the story of their love. Um, the, the boy is Thomas McNulty and it kind of it takes place over a number of decades, I think, but it's more about his expressions of love for this man, John Cole. Um, they, they become soldiers in the civil war. Um, they're, they're, I don't want to talk about it too much because the way that these sort of things and events and surprises and his thoughts unravel is just so surprising and seems so natural. Um, and the, the, it's kind of all takes place in his voice. And so when my friend said, are they going to make a film? I thought the the magic of this novel is so ingrained in his voice um, and his kind of 
um, you know, his accent and his um, literacy. Um, and so I just don't know if they could, but I'm sure that someone who's amazing and talented could perhaps adapt it. Anyway, I'm just unsure. You know, sometimes you have, you know, you have your darlings and you don't want them to become changed in yeah. any way. Um, mm. I would be brilliant to, to imagine these characters. Um, but anyway, I've told like 20 people to read this book. So um, I'm recommending it to all of you listeners as well. Uh, anyway, uh, that's kind of my, my thoughts for this month. Well, that sounds fantastic. Mm. There's some recommendations for people to, to chase up. Yes. And- and make their march brilliant um, if they haven't already. Okay, thanks for joining us here on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Remember to head over to the journal at sensesofcinema.com or to our Facebook page, or you can follow us on Twitter. I think our Twitter handle is at Senses of Cinema, so you might be mm-hmm. detecting a bit, of a bit of a pattern there. Thanks to Eloise Ross and to our fantastic third chair this month, Stuart Richards. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And Thank thanks to you. our technical producer, the wonderful Troy Morey, and to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful, sunny Hawthorne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast. We'll speak with you again next month. Mm-hmm.